Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain and we are on day 2162 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we continue with our extended series of messages that I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week 30 of a 43-week series about the good news according to John the Apostle. John has a unique style and narrative as we walk with him through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. Well, welcome to the Putnam Congregational Church Service for September 11th, 2022. Due to some difficulties with our recording equipment today, the service wasn't captured, so I'm recording this after the fact. And today we continue our series in the good news according to John the Apostle. Now, last week we saw Jesus teaching his disciples that the way to overcome fear was to allow that advocate, the Holy Spirit, to fill us and to bring us peace in our hearts. As we read in John chapter 14, verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. Our scripture today is taken from John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Jesus teaches us valuable lessons about abiding in him. So follow along as I read, starting with verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that they might be even more fruitful. You you are already clean because the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. If you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask me whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is for my Father's glory, that you will bear much fruit, showing yourself that you are my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this, that you may have joy and that your joy may be made complete. Now, after hearing about the imminent departure of this world on the eve of his crucifixion, fear gripped his disciples like a steel vice that they could not get out of. How could they possibly go on without Jesus? What would he, his kingdom become? Was the Lord challenging him to build the kingdom without a king? Well, not exactly, and these are the three reasons why. First, he promised that his going away played a crucial role in the plan that God would redeem the world and that he would return, and when he returned, he would take his throne and set up the global Eden that we are building right now as his kingdom. Second, he promised us that he would not leave them to fend for themselves, that he would be present with them through the person of the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit's role was to teach them and provide them courage. And thirdly, he promised confidence and truth of his words and comfort for continual peace that would grow as they obeyed him. Now the disciples did place their trust in Christ, but they they lacked the maturity that they really needed. The Lord taught them the divine truth for over three and a half years, but it had not yet been put fully to the test. 
The time had come for these infant Christians to begin walking on their own as a newborn baby gradually determines and is able to walk on their own. The time had come for them to do so. Now their only hope of overcoming fear, fear was to allow the confidence of the truth of Jesus Christ to grow and gradually displace it. In chapter 15, which we're covering over the next three weeks, Jesus describes three key relationships that every believer must manage. If they are to cultivate the confidence and rise over the consequences of the fall, including fear that grips each one of us like a steel vice. This week, we're going to cover verses 1 through 11, and the relationship is the believer with Christ. And the key term here is abide or remain in me, which occurs 10 times in these 11 verses. And the emphasis is a union with Christ. Next week, we'll look at the believer with the believer. And that is John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17. Love appears four times in these six verses. And the emphasis is the communion one with another. And uh, two weeks from today, we'll look at the believer with the world. John 15, 18 through 27. And the word hate is the key term, and it appears eight times in these 10 verses. And the emphasis here is the persecution that the believers may have to go through, and yet they are to stand strong. And as we examine chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, four observations will help our interpretation of this passage, which is oftentimes misinterpreted. First of all, the passage has meaning for believers only. Any non-believer trying to apply these truths will be hopelessly confused. Jesus is not describing how one becomes a Christian through this, but how one lives a Christian after placing their trust in him. Secondly, Jesus draws heavily on the metaphor of the vineyard, a powerful symbol for the, with the roots running deep in the nation of Israel, that soil of Israel's history. No illustration trust, trust, touched the Hebrew soul like the image of the vine dresser and his vineyard. Third, the primary subject of Jesus' teaching is abiding, not bearing fruit. At no point in this discourse, verses 1 through 11, is the believer commanded to produce fruit. Instead, we are promised that if we abide in Christ, that fruit will be the natural outcome or the outcropping of this. Fourth, the illustration that Jesus chooses would not be familiar to, would be familiar to every disciple and virtually all of John's readers of his day. But it's somewhat unfamiliar for us today. We don't live in an agri uh, agriculture society today. Most of us don't know what it takes to raise grapes or other types of fruit. Therefore, we must carefully be careful not to milk every little symbolic meaning or illustration that we see the bigger picture that this passage is really focused on. And that is our focus for today. So as we go deeper into these observations, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15, the image of the vine and the vine dresser, or the gardener as it's, it's translated in some um, versions, it touchingly illustrates God's special care for the nation of Israel, which gave the, apostles, the prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel a perfect image of their, for their stinging rebukes that they wrote in their prophecies. God had originally planted Israel into the promised land. And it was a means of revealing God's word to the world around them. Israel was to flourish by being a living example of how obedience will bears the fruit of righteousness. Moreover, the Lord promised to bless Israel as a nation and the relationship of trust grew stronger and stronger. But we see as we read the Old Testament into the New Testament that many times the nation of Israel failed. So Jesus now is declaring himself that true vine that was 
Originally promised to the Israelites, Jesus took the place of Israel here, claiming to be the authentic, healthy vine the nation had failed to become. Just as the Father attended to that failed vineyard of Israel, God would then tend the flourishing vineyard of his son. Jesus summarized the care of the vine dresser or gardener that he gives to the vine. The Greek verb ero, translated as cuts off, has a primary definition to lift up from the ground. Although the term can be used in either method in view of lifting up or carrying off or to put away, John uses arrows in both senses, both to cut off and to lift up. And therefore, it's a strong case for either definition these can be made. So if you think about a grapevine that runs along the trellis, and when the grapes started to grow, the grapevines would start to droop toward the ground. And the gardener would carefully take those grape branches and tie them back to the trellis as the heavier grapes become and they wouldn't droop because they didn't want them down where animals could get to them or that they would rot on the ground. So part of the pruning was to lift up and tie these grapevines to the trellis that would run across. Vine dressers, are rare, vine dressers are rarely seen cutting off branches and throwing them away during the, the, har- the growing season. And I grew up on an apple orchard and we would never prune the trees during the spring when the buds were out or during the summer as the fruit was starting to grow or during the fall during harvest time. We would only prune those trees during the dead of winter, when they were dormant and we could see all the branches and see which ones needed to be cut off and which ones needed to be left to produce a more abundant harvest the next year. As the vine dresser or the gardener would go down the row of the the grapevine, he would look for places that would droop down and they would tie them up and then snip off little pieces that might interfere with the growing of the productive crop the growing of those grapes to produce more and more. So they carefully lifted those sagging branches to tie them up to the trellis to produce what's called training of these vines so that they would know how to grow. And that's what the pruning here is in this message. They also strategically snipped off those smaller shoots, the branches to maximize the fruit yield. And it's called pruning or to lift up. And I favor lift up for a second reason. The combination between cutoffs and pruning places too great of emphasis on cutting the vine when Jesus' focus of the Father's care here is during growing season. Imagine carrying off dead branches is a detail that will appear later in this illustration, the image of that. As we move on to verses 3 and 4, the Lord reassured his disciples that they had already been pruned. The adjective here is translated already clean and is based on the same verb as to prune in verse 2. He followed the reassurance with the command that are translated in some Bibles as abide, but is translated more rightly in other versions, such as New International Version, to remain or to stay in place and very often reference staying in place at someone's home. Upon meeting Jesus, if you remember John chapter 1, verses 38, Andrew and John asked, Jesus, where are you staying? Or they ask, where are you abiding so we can abide with you? To remain is the terms that's used in this metaphor. It refers to a branch remaining or connected to the vine. Branches that do not receive that nourishing sap from the vine cannot produce a fruit or continue living in that matter if they're not getting the sap that they need to continue on. 
The key understanding of what Jesus meant to remain is an expression to remain in me, which is reflective of the theological concept called positional truth or identification. The Apostle Paul often described believers as being in Christ, and that identification describes the believer's relationship with Christ, such as that God would treat them as he treats Jesus Christ. Imagine driving up to the front gate of Buckingham Palace in London, and this is quite applicable for this week with the changing of the sort of the changing between Queen Elizabeth, who passed away this week, and King Charles, who's taking over. Now, if you drove up to Buckingham Palace and tried to go through the gates, you wouldn't get very far before you had to turn around. Without the proper credentials, the guards would turn you away. However, if the newly appointed King Charles sent his official car to pick you up and drive you to that gate, you would receive the same treatment as King Charles does. Because you're in the king's official vehicle, the guard would give you that same royal treatment that was due to the monarch of Great Britain. And similarly, being in Christ allows the believers to share the same identity of his son. Consequently, those in Christ enjoy all the benefits of his relationship, including the unrestricted access to the Father. Now, Jesus didn't use this illustration to make points about salvation in this passage. Instead, in verse 3, the Lord affirmed the disciples' salvation, assuring them that God had already done his part, and they were already clean. They were believers. They had placed their trust in Christ as their Savior. Then, with salvation settled in this, this particular passage, Jesus used the illustration to discuss the Christian life after salvation. He turned the issue from position, which remain in me, to that one as one of production. Once the individual chooses to believe and receives assurance of eternal life, what is our purpose on life? in life? What is our purpose for remaining here on earth? In other words, how then shall we live? Like the branches on the vine, we live to bear fruit, as it says in verse 2. Now, out back of our house, we have this small wooded area. And we have wild grapevines growing. Now, these grapevines can get up to about three to four inches in diameter at their base, and they grow throughout the trees. They become parasitic to the trees. But they're not trained, and they're not designed to produce fruit. We rarely see any type of fruit on these vines because they're wild, and they've never been trained or pruned in order to produce fruit. In the same way, if we are wild in our nature and don't accept Christ for producing fruit, then we, even though we might be believers, we're still the grapevines or the branches, we won't produce fruit because we're not abiding or remaining in Christ. As we move on to verse 5, as we examine this illustration, it's vitally important to keep two points in focus. First of all, this passage is not a subject about salvation. It's about the vitality of the believer. The image of fruit is a biblical, in biblical literature is common a common metaphor for evidence. Fruit provides evidence of the plant that reveals the state of the health of that plant. In this case, the metaphor is the grapevine, and the branches have to be healthy branches in order to produce the grapes. Now, an expert horticulturalist knows what part of what tree they're looking at by just observing either the leaves or the bark. Even in the middle of winter, when there's no leaves on there, an expert horticulturalist can tell what type of tree it is by observing the bark. But an untrained believer would have difficulty identifying what kind of tree they're observing. You know, if the tree hangs heavy with fruit, there's much less chance or no chance of error. If you see an apple tree and it's abundant apples all over it, 
you know it's an apple tree. If you see a pear tree with pears on it, you know it's a pear tree. Same way with the peach tree. Even a novice horticulturist knows that a lot of less fr- delicious fruit can come only from a robust and vibrant plant. But a seriously sick plant cannot accomplish this purpose. If there's no fruit or the fruit is very small like a crabapple tree, we know that it's not a healthy plant. Now Jesus indicated that the branches are the disciples. He's not referring to unbelievers here. And he has promised them by abiding or remaining in him, they would inevitably bear some fruit. If they remain connected to him, that they would receive that nourishing sap to grow strong and eventually bear unmistakable evidence of their identity as members of that vine, in this point, members of Christ's family. Moreover, the presence of fruit will testify to the good health in Christ. On the other hand, branches that do not bear fruit do not cease to be grapevines. They are still grapevines, grape branches, even if they're not producing fruit. So they're still part of that plant. But branches that do not remain connected to the vine, remaining in Christ, in other words, will wither away and become good for nothing. Now, Christians often assume that producing fruit is their responsibility, something that they have to do as gratitude for what Christ has done for them. So they should strive to produce fruit. But in doing so, we only fail. But then we pick ourselves back up again, promise to do better, try again, but continue that wretched cycle of failure when we try to produce fruit on our own strength and our own ability. That won't ever happen, or at least not consistently. Jesus instructed his followers to focus their attention on abiding in him rather than the production of the fruit. The production of the fruit is a side result or side evidence that they are abiding in Christ. So we move on to verse 6. The interpretation of John chapter 15, verse 6, can cause heated debate among some believers or communities of believers. Some have suggested that if you do not remain in me, that the believers who are unfaithful or have lost their salvation, that the vine dresser will decide to cut them off and throw them away into the fire. But Jesus said that once you're saved, you cannot be unsaved. In other words, you can't lose your salvation. Others suggest that these non-abiding branches represents that they were never genuine, genuine believers, people who reject Jesus outright or who just made a mere profession of their faith. Again, however, Jesus' illustration applies only to believers in these pas- this passage. We know this because in verse 2 it speaks of every branch that's already in me, meaning they are already residing in Christ, which presumes that the relationship already exists. And because verse 3 specifies Jesus' audience as those who are already clean, that means they have been saved. So we have to get our minds in the ancient Near Eastern mindset of that day, that agrarian society that allowed those of that day to understand what he, Jesus meant in this, this particular analogy or this allegory. Now, more likely, Jesus drew upon the imagery of Ezekiel's illustration in chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. And this is what Ezekiel wrote. Then this message came from the Lord, Son of man, how does a grapevine compare to a tree? Is a vine's wood as useful as the wood of a tree? Can its wood be used for making things like pegs to hang up pots and pans? No, it can only be used for fuel, and even as fuel, it burns too quickly. 
The vines are useless both before and after being put into the fire. So it's talking about dead vines here that are no longer tapped in and remaining to Christ to receive that nourishing sap that Jesus provides. The point is simply this. The vine dresser tosses those disconnected branches aside because they have become good for nothing. That doesn't mean that they've lost their salvation, but because they're not tapped into Christ to receive that nourishment, that nourishing sap that they need, that their lives are not productive. As Warren Wiersbe put it so succinctly, it is unwise to build a theological doctrine on a parable or allegory. Jesus was teaching one primary truth, the fruitful life of the believer. And we must not press the details much beyond that. Just as an unfruitful branch is useless, so an unfruitful believer is useless, and both must be dealt with. It is a tragic thing for a once fruitful believer to backslide and lose his privilege of fellowship and service. Jesus drew, drew upon Ezekiel's analogy to call believers who do not abide in him, he calls them that they were good for nothing. And that's why we must remain abiding in Christ so he'll abide in us. We cannot produce fruit on our own. If, however, we abide in Christ, we will accomplish our created purpose and we will be easily identified as healthy members of God's family. As we move on to verses 7 through 9, Jesus quickly turns the negative into a positive. As the believer abides or remain vitally connected to Jesus Christ, they begin to assume a Christ-like character. The believer is transformed from the inside out. The mind dwells on the kind of thoughts that God thinks. The believer's heart begins to reflect their values of God. And just as we think God, as just as we think, as God thinks, we ask for what is consistent with his plan, which results on giving him, giving us what we ask for. So we move on to the final two verses in this passage for today. So what does it mean to remain in me? We know this allegory applies only to believers and that abiding produces something in the believer's life such as others can easily identify them as being connected to Christ. But how does one remain in Christ? According to Jesus, the question is answered with one simple word. We remain in Christ through obedience, keeping his commandments and remaining in his love. These are synonyms to obedience. Take note of the parallel relationship established by Jesus. His connection with the Father is a pattern of our connection with Him. He obeys and loves His Father. We obey and love Christ. Because our relationship with Christ is just like with the Father, we will receive the same benefits, which is called joy in this final verse. The Greek word describes someone in the state of gladness, such as at harvest time when you would bring in the grapes or the apples or the pears or the peaches, you would be jubilant. Or like at a wedding feast when you're celebrating the union of a man and a woman. It's an emotive word intended to be the opposite of fear. Now as the dialogue opened, Jesus noticed that his disciples fear at the announcement of his departure. He first assured them that his departure was not intended to punish them for their shortcomings. Rather, his departure was necessary to bless them in spite of their failures, as we saw in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 15. He then promised them to be with them through the indwelling Holy Spirit, and that this would give them a sense of his continuing with them, although he wasn't 
physically present with them. In addition, we see that assurance, the reassurance in chapter 14, verses 16 through 31, that he gives us as a remedy for fear and a means to experience our ongoing, his ongoing presence despite his physical absence. And that is through obedience, which we're looking at today. When we obey, confidence displaces fear, resulting in joy. If you want to get rid of fear in your life, fill yourself up with obedience by remaining in Christ. So what's the application of this passage for us today? Now, if you've trusted in Christ, then your eternal destiny has been set. You have been chosen by God and nothing can pluck you out of God's hand. Your position in Christ is secure. However, your production of fruit is another matter. If you abide or remain in Christ, that is, if you obey him, primarily through loving others and loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind, you will enjoy four specific results because of that. The first result you'll see in your life is your prayers will be answered. And this is not to suggest that God is your personal genie. The promise here is conditional. If we are connected to the vine and become more like Jesus, our prayers will not be selfish prayers, but the kind of requests that Jesus would make himself. Jesus received everything he requested because he and the Father are completely consistent and consistently aligned in their thinking. The second result is that God is glorified. As a model of the character of Jesus, obeying the commands in the same way that we obey the, that he obeyed the Father, we'll see that the triune God is glorified. He delights to see us reflecting his character and looks for opportunities to pour out his blessings on his children as a response to their obedience and remaining in Christ. Third, love is stimulated. Think of the great branch and the, the vine and the branches hanging from it, that nourishing sap that flows through the branch into the, or through the vine into the branches. Our love as we remain in Christ will be stimulated. None of the absence Note the absence of exertion or struggle here. If we abide in Christ, the character qualities that honor the Lord will begin to emerge in our lives like grapes naturally growing from a healthy vine-connected branch. Because God is love, as we're told in 1 John 4, 8, others will notice those divine qualities that are developing within us. And the fourth result is that joy will overflow in our lives. Joy doesn't refer to some superficial happiness or shallow cheerfulness. On the contrary, joy is, deeply, is a deeply felt com- contentment that transcends even the most difficult circumstances we may have in our lives. And it der- derives the maximum enjoyment of every good experience. Although it isn't all about laughter when we're jo- joyful, abiding in Christ inspires laughter like you've never experienced it before. Moreover, deep, contented joy comes from a place of complete security and confidence, even in the middle of our trials. Now in the days of old, when the king was in his castle, they would fly a flag over that castle, signifying that the king was present. Now I like to think of the joy as the flag that flies over the castle of our hearts, announcing that the king is in residence in our heart. The king is in us, and we fly that flag of joy over us. You know, even as a pastor of the church, they can pastor without abiding in Christ. They can bring messages week after week and not be abiding in Christ. It's also possible of a Christian business person 
running their business without abiding in Christ, or teaching Bible classes, or a wife and a husband in their commitment to each other, or even people who counsel in the church can do so without abiding in Christ. And we've probably all experienced in our lifetime times where that abiding was weakened and we become miserable when we try to do so. However, any good that we do or any hope of success that we might enjoy if we are not abiding in Christ will not be lasting. Conversely, when we obey and allow his strength to flow through us, the Lord produces fruit that denies, defies natural explanation. We'll have powerful, effective prayers. We'll receive God-honoring blessings. We'll have unbounded love in our lives and we'll have inexplicable joy joy that's unexplainable. And you might ask, well, what is the evidence of fruit in the life of a believer? Well, it clearly states it in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, those are the evidence bubbling up in your lives that you are remaining in Christ, that you're receiving that nourishment sap that you need to strengthen you to produce the type of fruit that we as believers will evidence in our lives, the fruit of the Spirit. So let me ask you, is your life evidencing that fruit of the Spirit in your lives? Or do you need to be careful to remain in Christ that you will be able to produce this fruit. Remember, Christ doesn't call us to produce the fruit. He calls us to remain in him. And if we remain in him and he remains in us, the fruit will be evident in our lives. And this is what we want to do today. And the next Sunday, Jesus continues this lesson with his disciples and teaches them about the qualities of friendship, true lasting friends, friends in Christ, So please read John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17 in preparation for next week's message. Thank you for joining me today. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this time where we can learn about your fruit, the fruit that's in our lives because we remain in you and you remain in us. Thank you for your many blessings each day. Thank you for this time we can spend in your word. And we give it all the honor and glory to you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining me today. May you have a blessed week. See you next week. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, Listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.